Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're going to be starting chapter 9, and this is the story of Saul's conversion and being blinded on the road to Damascus. Let's open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for this time together to study your word and give us these pearls of wisdom from the Bible that we can apply to our lives. And Thanks for Mark, and bless this time together in Jesus' name. Hi, Mark, and welcome back to the show. Yes, it's good to be with you all. We have been looking at the book of Acts over the past few months as a restoration of Israel in spiritual form. And we are seeing uh, the systematic completion of Christ's plan, which he told to the disciples way back in Acts 1, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And we have been studying the first three parts of that plan being carried off Without a hitch, apparently, no apologies, no excuses. It's all gone according to plan. Now, with the execution of Stephen in Jerusalem, the believers of Jerusalem have now been scattered throughout Judea, and some have gone on uh, beyond. In this case, we'll see some of them try to find a refuge in Damascus to the north. And interestingly enough, later on, a large portion of the final of the ending chapters in Acts pertain to the various trials of Paul, the apostle, before high potentates. And he will always come back to the events we're going to look at tonight as the beginning of God's intended mission to bring the Gentiles, the non-Judeans, into the restored Israel. And so this is then, chapter 9 is the beginning of Christ's plan to carry his word to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this also will be key to the fulfilling of the many, many, many prophecies that speak of the ingathering of the Gentiles and or the regathering of Israel in the last days of Israel. So this is a very, very pivotal event here that we are going to find here in chapter 9. 
And let's uh, begin by reading down through verse 9 of chapter 9, please. Saul, still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, which would empower him to arrest and bring to Jerusalem anyone he might find, man or woman, living according to the new way. As he traveled along and was approaching Damascus, a light from the sky suddenly flashed about him. He fell to the ground and at the same time heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, sir? He asked. The voice answered, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Get up and go into the city where you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood there speechless. They had heard the voice but could see no one. Saul got up from the ground unable to see, even though his eyes were open. They had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. For three days he continued blind, during which time he neither ate nor drank. All right, perfect. Thank you, Leslie. Saul of Tarsus is, uh, well, a key figure, the leading writer of all of the Greek New Testament scriptures and a unique person here in the book of Acts. Here, well before the halfway point in the book of Acts, we're, in, we're introduced to him. He is going by his Aramaic name of Saul. He is of the tribe of Benjamin and... He was named after the most illustrious historical figure of the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul, the first king of united Israel back before David and Solomon. Uh, he was born in Tarsus, which is in present-day Turkey. At this time, it was in the province of Cilicia, which was kind of co-joined to Syria in the Roman Empire. Syria and Cilicia were one a province, and many famous Greeks and or Romans lived in these cities at this time. In fact, Augustus Caesar's tutor was from Tarsus in Cilicia, and apparently was kind of made the ruler over the city after Augustus came to power. So Saul came from this place, and people who owned property in that city were given citizenship in the Roman government. And so Saul's parents apparently qualified. And so Saul, very unique amongst believers of any kind, but but especially amongst uh, Judean believers, was a Roman citizen. Now, even though he was from Cilicia, he was a Judean because that was his nationality. His parents were of the Judean nationality, uh, descendants of of the people who had at one time inhabited the kingdom of Judah, um, which was uh, first laid waste by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians, and only a tiny remnant ever returned to rebuild uh, Judea. Most of the Judeans were scattered throughout uh, the world, the known world, and so the fact that we'd find Judeans in uh, 
Cilicia is not surprising at all. And Saul was sent down to Jerusalem to be tutored under Gamaliel, one of the greatest of all of the Pharisaic uh, rabbis, uh, not only of his age, but of all ages. Gamaliel is looked up to as being the epitome of a good and just teacher of the law of Moses. So Saul had many, many advantages in life. His family was relatively wealthy. He spoke a plethora of languages. He had knowledge in all the Greek classics, and he had one of the finest educations possible in the Hebrew Scriptures and the Law of Moses. He becomes more or less the 13th apostle, 14th in number, but 13th in terms of number living at one time because Judas Iscariot fell from his position and uh, Matthias was selected to take his place. Those 12 concentrated on the Judeans and focused their efforts early on, at least, in Judea. And most of them even stayed in Jerusalem after the death of Stephen. But Saul is going to have a different responsibility. Twelve is a number that's tied to Old Covenant Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel, and so on. The twelve apostles will judge the twelve tribes of Israel, Christ said. Paul is unique. He, he is going to be to the Gentiles what Jesus was to the Judeans. He's going to carry on with the work that Jesus had in Judea and Galilee, and he's going to go out throughout the whole uh, Greek-speaking world uh, with this message. And Luke has written the book of Acts parallel to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll see all kinds of parallels between the life of Paul in the latter part of Acts and the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. They each had three trials, for instance, and they're both hounded to death by the Judean leadership and so on. So it's, go it's going to be quite fascinating. And he's going to become the key figure a little bit later on in the book of Acts. But here we find his beginning <laughs> on the other side. Because of his Greek background, we mentioned earlier un during the arrest and trial of Stephen that it's very likely that uh, Saul was involved with one of the synagogues of the libertines or freedmen in Jerusalem where they probably spoke in Greek. And these, of course, were the most violent and bloodthirsty opponents of the gospel and of the disciples. And after Stephen's death, Paul, or Saul as he's known, his Aramaic name, he is just on fire to continue what they started with the execution of Stephen and he's breathing threats and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord and so he goes to the high priest who would have been a Sadducee someone who had completely different beliefs than Saul but they could put aside their differences to agree on this course with their common enemy and he received letters to send to Damascus when the Maccabees achieved uh, independence from the Seleucid Greek kings of Syria, they found a real uh, patron in Rome before Rome 
was the great empire that she would become later. And Rome intervened diplomatically and made sure that the Judean authorities, Hasmonean kings as they were known, the descendants of Judas Maccabeus, had extradition rights with all the surrounding countries. So this this idea of being able to extradite criminals to Judea had a precedent going back uh, almost 200 years at this time. So Saul was probably armed with these letters of extradition uh, to authorities in Damascus and then other letters that would have gone to the uh, leaders of the synagogues. The letters to the synagogues alone would not have given him the legal authority to bring Judeans back home to stand trial. But there's good records that these agreements were all in place so that uh, a Judean fleeing Judea could be extradited back there. And this is what he was intent to do, was to go up to Damascus to look for those who had fled Jerusalem and to bind them and bring them back down to Jerusalem for trial and speedy execution, no doubt. A fair trial, I should say. <laughs> a fair trial and a speedy execution. Now, Luke here uses the way to describe the disciples, and he'll, he'll do this uh, numerous other times later in the book, but it's kind of narrow-minded of Luke to use that because it, it sounds almost like something that's exclusive, the way. He should have said a way because we know that uh, rabbinic Judaism and Buddhism and uh, gay and lesbian task forces are all equally plausible means of being reconciled to God today. I say this all tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> Thank you. But, no, it's the way. It's something very exclusive. This is very politically incorrect. And I need to ask Tom if we can attach some graphics uh, to these podcasts where people can refer to them, because I need to make everyone a little diagram of a timeline. The Judean people only knew of two ages. They knew of their present age that they lived in, and then they knew of the age to come, which was the age of the Messiah. And astute Judeans recognized that the age of the Messiah was about to begin in the first century because they had the very detailed prophecies of from Daniel, which gave multiple timelines, all pointing to the time of the Roman Empire, which had begun just a short time before Christ's birth as the time of the Messiah and of the time when God would accomplish all of his plans for reconstituting Israel and conquering death and sin and so on and so forth. And I refer you back to our podcast on Daniel uh, if you want more information on that. In fact, the rabbis in Jerusalem had recently quit calling it the age to come and shortly before the events that we find in our New Testament they had changed it to the age that is about to come because they you know knew the timelines in Daniel so these things are all happening according to plan but the the old age is on its way out and a new age is beginning and we we've also looked at the book of Acts as a new exodus calling uh, up to this point for the Judean people to leave behind everything that they know of religion and God, to jump ship and to come into a new assembly of God's people. 
which is this way that Luke is referring to here in chapter 9, verse 2. This is the way of righteousness spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. The preparing the way was the work of John the Immerser to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And this is that way. These are the disciples of the way. And, and I would say this more or less correlates to the, the straight gate that we use sometimes in some of our um, announcements and events and so on. They had to get off of the broad highway, which was taking them to the end of their age and to certain destruction, complete destruction, physical and spiritual. And they had to jump ship onto a different way. And so I believe this is what is being referred to here. And it's a very important concept to notice how narrow-minded Luke is in using that because he he denotes it as something that's exclusive, not one of many ways, but it is the way. Mark, will the comment be in order? Oh, sure. I think this should be emphasized what you're talking about because the essence of Judeo-Christianity or Christian Zionism, as it's sometimes called, is that those who are in it insist that you have to be bound by the old way as well as the new way. And they would argue and contend that you can't simply regard Christ's coming as a, as a total change, as you've described it. Right, it's a completely different view of the world and of the scriptures, uh, mutually exclusive uh, view. There's no, not much common ground between my view and their view. Thank you. And we'll see more. We'll see much more of that, you know, later in the book. Yes, Leslie. Well, uh, my translation does say the new way, and I recall Jesus said that He is the way, the truth, and the life. He did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. So these are followers of the new way, (laughs) Jesus's way, the way. (laughs) You know, there's a whole other comparison we could make to the people, the people of God. If we go back to Moses, the covenant of Mount Sinai, the law of Moses, this was to set apart a people to be the people of God, the special people of God. And so by Luke calling this new group of people the way, it's almost subtly saying that the old people are no longer the people of God in that sense of being the people. So if there's irony built into this that we'll see here uh, in these events. So Saul is commissioned with these letters from the high priest which carry authority as a head of state to the civil authorities in Damascus and as the head of God's people to the synagogues in Damascus. And so he's going up north, and as he got close to Damascus, this light shone uh, all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a, a voice calling out his name twice. Now, there are many parallels on this account to the calling of prophets in the Old Testament when God appears to Ezekiel 
in the land of Babylon is this brilliant light coming down out of the sky, and he falls to the earth as one dead, shaking in abject terror of imminent death. Isaiah has some similar experiences recorded, uh, and some of the other prophets. So I don't think these parallels are coincidental. Having his name repeated twice, that's also, there, there are precedents for that in the Old Covenant scriptures as well. So he's being called here in a similar manner to several great prophets who have gone before him. And this bright light goes all the way back to to Moses, who got to see the backside of God's presence on Mount Sinai, and his face shone so brightly after that, as long as he lived, apparently, that he had to wear a veil because his face was so bright that it terrified all of the people of Israel. So we're getting a lot of imagery out of the uh, Hebrew scriptures here in this uh, event that, that strikes poor Saul on his way up to zealously work for, for the cause of God and the law. Saul is on the ground. He's been blinded by the light. This voice is apparently really loud in his ears. And he asks, who, who is this Lord, uh, more or less? He gets a very shocking answer that this is Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, how could Saul persecute a Jesus? A trick question for our studio audience. <laughs> well, <laughs> he was trying, that's for sure, up to that point. Well, he didn't believe he was the Messiah, apparently. Well, that's true, but Jesus is safe in the spiritual realm at this point, and mm -hmm, Saul yeah. is not. And so how can Saul persecute Jesus? Jesus has already been put I'm to death. I'm persecuting the Christians. Exactly, because they are Jesus' new body. Yes. His physical body has been transformed at the cross, and we looked at this in the Gospel of John, and now his body is the collective body of believers. So it's, it's that imagery of a husband and wife, the two shall be not two, but shall be joined and be made one flesh. Christ is one flesh with the believers. So if Saul is persecuting one believer, he is persecuting the body of Jesus. So anyway, a subtle relationship, but one that I think you know should be pointed out here. <laughs> Jesus is taking this very personally, okay? <laughs> Just as uh, modern-day husbands should do if somebody was persecuting uh, their wife or their daughter or their, one of their young children it would be a very personal thing. So this is very personal with Jesus. Saul is no doubt shocked because he knows this Jesus was a charlatan, an imposter, who was rightfully put to death. So how can someone who is a sinner and dead uh, speak out of a blinding light? You know, how can this be? Saul's whole world has just been completely shaken to pieces here on the road to Damascus. Jesus doesn't wait for him to soak any of this up, just like uh, he didn't back into the prophet Ezekiel. He said, get up and go do what I'm telling you to do. And same thing, get up 
Saul and go on into Damascus and there it will be told you what you must do. <laughs> it doesn't say you'll be given options or you'll be given no. choice. Uh, you will be told what you must do. <laughs> so, does it sound to you like uh, God is not really in control of events? <laughs> no, I mean, this reeks to me of the absolute sovereignty of God in in establishing the kingdom exactly as he intended to and in Saul's life. God is demonstrating his absolute, complete sovereignty and control over events here. Uh, Mark, there isn't a single Christian Zionist church, no matter how radical they become, that does not hold that God is absolutely in power and total control of everything. And yet, you're absolutely right, their arguments require them to sort of accept the idea that God just couldn't quite pull this off. I don't know that any of them ever uh, in their the Baptist church, for instance, I don't believe they ever come out and say God is in total control except in matters involving a second coming, in which case he fumbled. I don't think they ever have an exception, that they ever voice an exception where God fumbled the ball. No, but, you know, they don't strive for consistency either. They would much rather just uh, yell at you, strike your comments uh, if they're in writing from their pages and act like you never existed than try to explain the inconsistencies in their various uh, ridiculous positions. Well said. Thank you. Oh, certainly. So, all right, so... (laughs) Saul must go into Damascus. The uh, men that accompany him, I mean, he's hoping to make a big haul here, so it's it's very likely he took helpers with him to bring back a plethora of prisoners to face that fair trial and speedy execution I mentioned earlier. But the men that were with him were confused about what was going on. They could hear something, but they couldn't see anyone speaking to Saul. Saul got up. He couldn't see anything. They took him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without being able to see. And he couldn't eat or drink. Again, I don't, he was shook up. His whole world has just been completely blown apart. His whole paradigm, his way of looking at things, his way of looking at the law of Moses, which was his life, his new life of getting rid of these heretics. Everything had just been taken away from him. So he'd suffered a huge, huge personal loss here. And he's grieving. He he couldn't eat or drink. He's, he's very, very upset. Any final thoughts here on the first nine verses? I would say Saul was put on trial by Jesus himself and suffered the consequences. Well, he got off pretty easy if it was a trial. <laughs> Well, Jesus put him through a trial, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, but what, you know, what would he... I mean, he was a part of the unlawful death of Stephen, so what was the proper yeah. penalty for what Saul had already done? Oh, death. Absolutely. Yeah, death. And he, he addresses himself uh, in his later writings as the chiefest of sinners, not because of things he'd done before then, but because of the persecution of the body of Christ that he so zealously carried out. He viewed himself as the vilest 
and lowest of all sinners on the earth as a result of it. So there was a trial, but he was uh, his sentence has apparently been commuted, and we'll find out more here. Okay, let's uh, read 10 through 19, please. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, to whom the Lord had appeared in a vision. Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord, came the answer. The Lord said to him, Go at once to Straight Street, and at the house of Judas, ask for a certain Saul of Tarsus. He is there praying. Saul saw in a vision a man named Ananias coming to him and placing his hands on him so that he might recover his sight. But Ananias protested, Lord, I have heard from many sources about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He is here now with authorization from the chief priest to arrest any who invoke your name. The Lord said to him, You must go. This man is the instrument I have chosen to bring my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I myself shall indicate to him how much he will have to suffer for my name. With that, Ananias left. When he entered the house, he laid his hands on Saul and said, Saul, my brother, I have been sent by the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the way here to help you recover your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized and his strength returned to him after he had taken food. All right, thank you again. Uh, Ananias is the name of a certain disciple in Damascus. Now, we can assume that he was not one of the refugees from Jerusalem, but was probably a disciple from Galilee who had just meandered a little ways north uh, into Damascus. We had probably been established there for a little bit longer than the more recent refugees, but that's somewhat speculative, but that's what uh, scholars would believe. The name Ananias is... Uh, an Aramaic name, not a Greek name. And it looks like that Ananias and Saul were communicating in Aramaic later on, just from some of the words used and so on, rather than in Greek. This comes from the old uh, Hebrew word Hananiah, which means the Lord has favored. It was a common name in uh, ancient Israel still in favor here in the first century. We've already run into two people named Ananias uh, in the book of Acts. Interestingly, we don't hear of Ananias anymore after this, but he plays an important uh, role here. He serves as a prophet because God appears to him in a vision, and he's called just like an Old Testament prophet uh, would have been called. And God doesn't give him a choice either. <laughs> <laughs> no. get up and go to the street which is called Straight and this is apparently still a famous uh, street in Damascus Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city on planet earth as far as I know it goes back at least 2,000 years or more before Christ and has been continuously lived in um, all of this time 
it's a real tragedy, you know, what's happening to the city uh, now as we record this. But it, it's uh, it's got some extremely ancient districts in the city, and this street is still there and identifiable to this day. It has an Arabic name, which I forget, but uh, people know which street this was. He was to go to the house of Judas to find this man of Tarsus named Saul, who is there praying. And he has had his own vision seeing you (laughs) coming in to see him and laying hands on him so that he might receive his sight. So, again here, we don't see a bunch of hopeful uh, things. We see God acting decisively through human beings here and being in complete control of the situation. Ananias has some serious objections. You know, all of these guys that God called just about had objections. Moses said he couldn't speak well enough to be a spokesman for God. And Isaiah said he was a man of unclean lips and so on. They all had excuses. Ananias, his excuse is that he has heard how evil this man is and all of the evil that he did to your saints in Jerusalem. So see, he wasn't there. So it looks like Ananias, you know, had been here in Damascus um, since before the death of Stephen. The word had already arrived that Saul was coming with authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon your name. Jesus overcomes his objections, pretty much just ignores them. Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel to me. He's got a special job to bear the name of Christ before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. <laughs> so he doesn't have a choice to whether to suffer these things or not. Later on, Paul would write, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Because he realized what Leslie was speaking of, that he, he had been tried found guilty of murder, but his sentence had been commuted. And in in lieu of being obliterated by God, he was sent as a special ambassador to kings and the Gentiles and the children of Israel. And he would suffer greatly, you know, for this. So when people try to apply the commission of Paul to every Christian today, you know, it's, it's kind of a bit of a stretch, fortunately for us, because uh, we're not all commanded to suffer. But here we, we read straight off that Saul was commanded to suffer and knew that he deserved it, as, as his writings show. For the name of Jesus, he would suffer these things. So Ananias uh, didn't hesitate at this point. He got up, left his house, went down to Judah's house, There's probably some irony uh, over using the name Judas there. Just like Judas betrayed Christ, uh, Saul is now going to betray all of the Judean leadership here big time. He uh, comes in and lays his hands on Saul, which is kind of a commissioning act in the book of Acts, this laying on of hands. We saw how the apostles came down to uh, Samaria to lay hands on the Samaritans to give them the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Here, Ananias is laying hands on Saul. And this will be real critical later on 
because Saul will have to prove that he did not receive his commission from any of the apostles in Jerusalem. He received it directly from the Lord Jesus, he affirms. And he got part of it there on the road to Damascus, and now he's getting another part of it through Ananias, who is not acting as any high potentate or official. He's strictly acting as a prophet, as the spokesman for God. And so Paul can quite easily say that he received his commission directly from the Lord Jesus, because the Lord Jesus is speaking right now through Ananias as his prophet. So Ananias says that uh, Jesus has sent me so that you can receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So immediately something fell off his eyes like scales and he could see again. He got up and he was uh, immersed and he took food and was strengthened. Now the, the uh, there's been a huge war <laughs> Uh, raging in religious circles for 150 years, uh, unique to America, was Saul saved when Jesus appeared to him on the road, or was he saved here when he was baptized? And, of course, the Southern Baptists are adamant that he was saved uh, when the vision, when God appeared to him on the road, and the baptism is totally unrelated. And... uh, and diehard Calvinists would, would say the same thing. We have way too many important things to uh, <laughs> to work on than to argue over the exact point of Saul's salvation. God obviously knew exactly what would happen here, and, you know, I don't really know. Some, some make a big point that uh, Ananias calls him Brother Saul before he was baptized, but they were brothers in the sense of both being Judeans in a foreign city anyway. So that's not a conclusive argument either. So, again, I would I would hope or suggest that that question be avoided as, as almost irrelevant. We do see, you know, extreme consistency throughout the book of Acts that believers received baptism immediately. I mean, this three-day delay here is the longest we ever find in any... New Testament conversion of any kind. So, anyway, the point is he was immersed, and certainly at some point between the Lord appearing to him on the road and his baptism, he's a believer, and now he's a member of this new family, the new way. Baptism, of course, signifying the entrance, the exit out of the old way and the entrance into the new way, the body, the new body of Christ, the new temple, whereas the old way looked to the old temple. Well, we'll see. He's also switched high priests in the uh, course as well. All right, any thoughts here on this paragraph? There's a book with the title that says the church is Israel now. Would that be true uh, that the church is the new Israel, or the Israel that Jesus in the Old Testament was referring to, in other words. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I think that's what we're seeing here in the book of Acts. Just the, the caveat is that the word church is a really uh, bad word. It's an artificial word. It's a really bad translation of the Greek word ekklesia. The Hebrew word that gets translated into ekklesia is assembly or congregation. 
which was what was the word used for Israel at Mount Sinai, the assembly or the congregation. There's a Hebrew word for that. And when the uh, Septuagint was translated, they translated that word ecclesia. So a far better rendering is congregation or assembly. Literally in the Greek, it's the called out assembly. So when we say the church is Israel, and I think I've held up a sign, you know, that says that, at vigils, we've always tended to emphasize the church, that word as being the most important. But when we actually look at the book of Acts, what I'm seeing as I go through this is that Israel is what's important. These are God's timeless promises, which our Zionist friends are so caught up into, are all of these timeless promises to restore Israel. So, Israel is the whole thing. This is God's eternal purpose, is to restore Israel as the perfect bride for his son, because the old Israel was a very, very poor bride for his son. The new Israel is the perfect bride for his son. And so, just in the course of doing this study, I would tend now to de-emphasize the word church We've called ourselves the church, but what we really are is Israel. <laughs> the the spiritual Israel, the new Israel, the sons of Abraham, and so on. That's that's most important. Church is a secondary concept, and we've had it the other way around, you know, for for hundreds of years. That's because we're attached to these buildings they call churches huh. in great proliferation here, of course, in the United States yes. and yes. all over the world, but to a very high density here in the United States anyway, the institution of churches. Yeah, so the the word church has a lot of baggage attached to it that's unbiblical. And so, you know, I think we need to de-emphasize that word and, and start to use words that convey God's thoughts a little more accurately in this matter. We'll have to mm. do on that. I, I heard a great lesson uh, years ago by a heretic preacher named Charles Holt, and it was out of the church and into Christ. (laughs) At the time, I couldn't appreciate it, but now I look back and say, wow, he was brilliant. He really had this figured out. Why did you call him a heretic? Are you saying that just (laughs) facetiously then, or that's what you thought at the time? The Greek word heresy means to teach something different. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. He was teaching something you know, radically different. And so he is, he meets the Greek definition of a heretic. But I'm not saying it in any way to denigrate him or say anything bad. Quite the opposite. The man had vast moral courage to teach God's truth, even though it was heresy to those who were addicted to church buildings and boards of elders and human institutions. He stood up to them and really taught God's truth on the matter. The church is nothing in the sense that we have traditionally perceived it. The body of Christ is everything. We must be joined to Christ. We must be part of his body, this assembly, this this Israel, this spiritual Israel. Uh, that's what we must be part of, not any kind of institution that we normally would associate with the term church. Wow. So I'm a heretic now, too. <laughs> Biblical heretic. How about that? Well, Is that an oxymoron? <laughs> it's always had a negative connotation, yeah, because I guess it's not really a 
going with the mainstream, uh, the mainstream of thought. And we, we see how deceived so many of the mainstreamed are by so many things today. Yeah, here's definition of heresy. A belief or opinion contrary to orthodox, especially Christian, religious doctrine. Second definition, opinion profoundly at odds with what is generally accepted. Oh. So by both of those definitions, Charles Holt is a heretic and I am a heretic. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to know you. (laughs) Nice to know you. All right, well, I think we're probably at the end of our time here. This was this was a great, very thought-provoking uh, lesson, Mark. Wow, you, you went over the top today. And continue on with us next week, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining in. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.